4: And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com.
1: Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024.
5: I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited time men's collection for the everyday guy. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count.
1: KFI AM 640, live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app.
2: Last year, nearly every county in California lost one person to fentanyl. 5,722 Californians died in one year from fentanyl overdoses and poisoning. Another local high school is mourning after a student died from a fentanyl poisoning. The student local high
1: doctor. school student is dead, and at least two others are hospitalized after authorities say they overdosed on drugs.
2: 17 years old. GONE BEFORE HIS LIFE REALLY BEGAN. SEVERAL YOUNG PEOPLE
1: OVERDOSED IN HOLLYWOOD LAST NIGHT. NO PARENT SHOULD EVER HAVE TO MOURN THE LOSS OF A CHILD, BUT THAT'S EXACTLY WHAT ONE FULLERTON MOM HAS BEEN GRAPPLING WITH AS SHE DEALS WITH THE TRAGIC DEATH OF HER 17-YEAR-OLD DAUGHTER.
4: THE CDC SAYS IN THE LAST 12 MONTHS IN AMERICA, OVER 100,000 PEOPLE HAVE DIED FROM A DRUG OVERDOSE, AND MORE THAN HALF DIED FROM FENTANYL. THIS
2: DESTROYS PEOPLE, IT'S DESTROYED MY FAMILY, ME. I'm without my son, my baby.
4: Cops and courts are cracking down hard on those who make and sell fentanyl.
3: Two teenage boys have been arrested in connection with the overdose death of that 15-year-old girl at Bernstein High School.
0: 24-year-old Aaron Dare is now charged with murder.
4: Originally, the defendant was charged with the sales of fentanyl that ultimately led to the death of the victim. Today
2: is a down payment on our work to tackle the fentanyl crisis and the poison peddlers in our neighborhood should watch out because we are coming for them next. I'm Steve Gregory.
4: Join me for the next two hours as we explore the history of fentanyl and why opioids have become a problem in Southern California and around the nation and how kids are playing Russian roulette every time they buy another deadly pill. We begin our journey with one of the agencies tasked with stopping the flow of opioids and fentanyl. Bill Bodner is the special agent in charge of the Drug Enforcement Administration here in LA. I asked him when fentanyl popped up on the DEA's radar.
3: You know, it it first started becoming something that we noticed as a problem in in 2016. Um, I remember specifically what it was and where I was standing and who I was talking to. We were doing an investigation and uh, by doing this investigation, we learned that this Mexican organization was compiling a list of chemicals and we wondered, you know, what in the, what in the world is this about? We didn't know uh, what these chemicals would be used for. We sent them to our lab director in San Diego and said, hey, these chemicals, what drug are, is this for? What are they going to do with this? And he came back and said, "That's to make fentanyl," and that's when we knew that that the game was going to change.
4: Well, what at that point had you heard of
3: fentanyl? Did you know what it was? I've heard of it. Uh, I knew what it was. Um, the the high-profile case up to that point was the death of Prince, the mu- musician, who died of fentanyl. Um, so it was something that we knew about, but it was more like a, almost more like a, a boutique drug. Uh, a designer drug, some of it came directly from China to the United States in powdered form, by by package, by like DHL package. and uh, and small groups in the United States would would press pills. Um, it's amazing how that since the cartels got involved in the game in the game, the Sinaloa cartel, Jalisco New Generation cartel, the dynamic completely changed. And really, the drug doesn't come directly from China now. The chemicals come from China to Mexico. The drug is synthesized there and it's all coming from mexico into the u.s and and that's when the game changed and we saw this huge influx of fentanyl beginning. so
4: it, it sort of happened overnight
3: <clears throat> almost yeah what's the attraction profitability i mean what, what the way i explain it to people is we have a fentanyl problem in this country because the sinaloa cartel and the jalisco new generation cartel decided that we're going to have a fentanyl problem and the question is, why did, they, why did they make that decision? It's a business decision. This is an extremely profitable drug for them because of its synthetic nature. The same is true for methamphetamine. Don't kid yourself. There's a lot less cocaine in Los Angeles right now than there was 20 years ago. That's because the Mexican drug cartels made the decision that fentanyl is the drug they're going to push because it's more profitable for them so they set the tone and pace they set the tone i mean they de- unfortunately the reality is they decide what drugs we're going to have social issues with in this country and think about it if if you want to increase profitability as a as a drug cartel and you want to do it with heroin what does that require it requires you to have control of vast uh swatches of land in mexico where the the opium plants the poppy plants are grown then you have to have people working in those fields scoring the plants scraping the gum you need to control that area and protect it from rival cartels with fentanyl you don't need to do any of that all you need to do is get chemicals you can make the drugs in a warehouse in a garage so you don't have that that all the problems that come along with scaling heroin production. So they decided, okay, we're not gonna make our money from heroin. Uh, The same could be said for cocaine. If you wanna make more money trafficking cocaine, the coca plant isn't grown in Mexico. They have to go to South America, get a source for the the kilos of cocaine, not an issue. They've had sources for years, but they have to get that cocaine through the transit zone in Central America. How many different governments uh, you know areas does that load have to go through whether it's by air or by boat or by submarine now right who has to be paid off or what risk are they taking that it's going to be seized just to get it into Mexico so they can then add a couple thousand dollars to the price and sell it here in the United States risky business not the most profitable business why not vertically integrate control the production of the drug and the distribution of the drug and do it without the need to control a large Large areas of land. And that's what's happened with synthetic drugs. Tack on top of that, Steve, the marijuana business used to be profitable for for drug cartels. And, you know, 2016 is when the vote happened in California to legalize uh, cultivation. Um, That also plays a factor because, you know, I remember one of the politicians, and I don't remember which one, said in California, this, you know, by legalizing marijuana, we're going to. Uh, deal a devastating blow to the drug cartels. That didn't happen. That was that was a little bit of a naive statement. What happened was it dealt a devastating blow to their marijuana trade, but they're not going to go out of business. They're going to find somewhere else to profit, and they turned to synthetic drugs, and, and that's that's what the focus is now, and, and we're kind of bearing uh, the brunt of that here.
4: We're speaking with Bill Bodner. He is the special agent in charge of the Los Angeles Division of the Drug Enforcement Administration. So, Agent, you were talking about in twenty sixteen, when you you said the the fentanyl problem exploded, how does an agency wrap its head around dealing with a new problem like this?
3: Yeah, well, I'm going to say, you know, lucky for us, and I hate to use that term because we're talking about such devastating drug. And anything that happens with fentanyl is 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 tragic. But it's the same people trafficking fentanyl that were trafficking meth and cocaine. It's the same routes used to traffic fentanyl that were trafficking meth and cocaine. Uh, It's the same organizations that used to traffic cocaine and methamphetamine that are now trafficking fentanyl. So we were in the right place targeting the right people. Uh, That didn't change. Now it's just a question of the drug changing, right? The drug changing and the drug being that much more deadly to the people of this country. So, So really, uh, you know it's very when we seize a load of fentanyl coming up from mexico and we get it in, in the la area here it's very often a majority of the time mixed with other drugs like there'll be pounds of methamphetamine packages of fentanyl and then sometimes even kilograms of cocaine all coming across the border in the same car same truck driven up to la so all these mexican cartels are poly drug they're moving a Uh, a lot of different drugs they're moving them in the same manner through the same smuggling routes Uh, the issue is that now more and more every day the focus is becoming synthetic drugs fentanyl and methamphetamine
4: so the difference though is that you would be able to fly over these fields Uh at least spot where marijuana grows were you used to be able to you know coca plants if you will if you had any kind of intel from other countries but not this this can be all done like you say, in yeah. a warehouse. So yeah, this, this does that be, cause
3: a problem? I mean, it makes it a lot more difficult. Of course, of yeah. course, because you know, like you said, it's very easy to do flyovers, and that used to be a big part of of what was done in Mexico way back in the '80s to identify marijuana fields. Flyovers were a big part of it. Um, that's that's not possible with this type of synthetic drug operation. You know, we're talking a warehouse. A a nondescript warehouse in any kind of industrial neighborhood and they could be making literally uh, thousands of pounds of methamphetamine there or thousands of pounds of fentanyl there.
4: Coming up we speak with a professor of pharmacology about the history of fentanyl and how future pharmacists are being trained to spot opioid abuse but first this is the KFI news special deadly pill on KFI AM 640 time now for a news update.
1: KFI AM 640 live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. If you or someone you know suffers from a mental and or substance use disorder, call the National Toll-Free Helpline at 1-800-662-HELP. That's 1-800-662-4357.
4: I'm Steve Gregory and this is the KFI News special, Deadly Pill. Dr. Melissa Durham is with the University of Southern California's School of Pharmacy. She's also an Associate Professor of Clinical Pharmacy. She is a wealth of knowledge and I wanted to start where a lot of addiction starts pain management?
0: Well, I think a lot of people don't understand how much of an impact pain has on people's overall life. Um, almost 20% of all adults in the United States suffer from chronic pain, and about 8% actually suffer from high-impact high chronic pain, where that actually you know, prevents people from doing activities of daily living and things that they enjoy and maybe going back to work. Uh, people may be on permanent disability. Um, most folks who suffer from chronic pain also have um, a mood disorder along with it like depression or anxiety or sleep disorders. So it really has a huge impact and actually a high cost burden on our society too when you think of the loss of productivity and just that huge impact on quality of life. so. What we do in pain management is focus on restoring functionality and restoring quality of life. Um, by using a whole variety of treatment modalities from medications to interventional therapies, um, pain psychology, occupational therapy, physical therapy. It really takes a holistic approach to caring for the patient. And that's the gold standard. And that's what we do, um, at least in my practice, when we talk about pain management.
4: And we are at the campus of USC and, and you are a professor. So how are you teaching the pharmacists of tomorrow, if you Mm -hmm. will, to deal with uh, issues of addiction and and this pain management? And how does that all fit into your curriculum?
0: Well, it's not just the curriculum here, but I also um, take this externally to teaching other healthcare professionals. And some of the concepts are really tricky and really kind of like gray area. We don't live in a world of, of black and white. So when we talk about treating folks with chronic pain, we really focus on having um, a a sort of compassionate side to it, you know, really trying to have empathy for the suffering that people are going through while balancing um, putting safety, the sort of these safety guardrails in place, so that way we don't contribute, um, you know, to the opioid epidemic that's going on um, or any other medication rela- related issues that, that um, might be caused from the treatments that we use. So um, we focus on optimizing their medications with using, Uh, what we call multimodal therapy. So we may use medications like opioids, but we try to minimize that as much as possible. But we also use a variety of other therapies um, available to us as well. So that's kind of probably a broad stroke of of how we talk about this, the compassionate care and using a variety of different um, treatment therapies and focusing on the whole patient.
4: So that's where we're at now. So let's go back 10, 15, maybe even 20 years Mm -hmm. uh, when opioids I don't know that I even remember the the word opioid ten years ago or mm-hmm. twenty years ago, but um, when it was first prescribed for pain management, it seemed like it was it was handed out for everything. It seemed mm-hmm. like it was prescribed nonstop. Is that was that the case?
0: Um, yeah, that's probably a semi accurate depiction of it. I, I'd say that it was very widely prescribed and widely used. I mean, for years. Um, hydrocodone acetaminophen what you may know as vicodin or norco that was the number one prescribed uh, medication in the united states as far as number of prescriptions and it was like that for years yes um and everyone had that bottle of vicodin you know in their medicine cabinet where they got it from a dentist i'm not trying to vilify any profession a dentist a podiatrist you know pain management specialist primary you know everybody had it um and it was widely accepted so that's one example of how prevalent it was um you know when we look back to and there's there's a lot of great resources outlining um this process and how this kind of evolved in our history but when we look back to the late 90s early 2000s um that's when the long-acting opioids really um sort of came into play in the market in a big way and they were touted as um allowing people to live pain-free and get back to work and do the things that they wanted to do and um and also advertise in very unethical ways that they wouldn't cause addiction, right? So um, we had an explosion of those products on the market in the late 90s, early 2000s, and they were used pretty inappropriately um, for, you know, even in young teenagers post a sports injury, you know, I mean, things like that, where nowadays we would never do anything like that. Um, So, it's been an interesting evolution. We had a huge sort of flux of the use of opioids for pain management in kind of inappropriate ways out of you know, fear of people dying and living in pain and response to maybe unethical marketing practices. Um, and then it's evolved to really decrease over time.
4: Was, you know, when, uh, and I'm not sure if you know the answer to this, but anytime there's a medication on the market, regardless if it's for the most benign thing or the most severe thing like opioids, wasn't there any kind of an indication that this over prescribing of opioids was going to cause a problem with addiction i mean was there any indication that this stuff was addictive
0: yeah <laughs> i mean i listen it's no it's no news flash that opioids cause quote-unquote addiction i mean we're kind of trying to move away from the word addiction just so you know to more substance use disorders because. Addiction tends to be a very stigmatizing term. Um, But, yeah, I mean, you look back to the history of opioids, we've had, like, for example, um, the opium wars, (laughs) right? The opium dens, um, big drug scourges with with heroin. And, I mean, this is no newsflash that opioids are addictive. (laughs) So it's just, it is kind of mind-boggling that no one... Saw this coming, or no one cared actually because it was so profit-driven. Maybe, um, but I know a lot of healthcare providers who were sounding alarm bells early on and who didn't take up the prescribing practices of using opioids, as as we talked about before. So it's not, it's not really surprising.
4: So our society and the medical infrastructure—they really weren't prepared for all this, were they?
0: I wouldn't say that we were prepared for the vast amount of folks who ended up with opioid use disorder and we weren't prepared to treat
4: them properly. bonus interview with Dr. Durham is available on the Deadly Pill podcast through the iHeartRadio app. Coming up, we go back to the DEA and talk with Special Agent Bill Bodner about how fentanyl is making its way into California and just how easy it is to buy it. But first, this is Deadly Pill on KFI AM 640. Time now for a news update.
1: KFI AM 640, live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app.
4: I'm Steve Gregory, and this is the KFI News special Deadly Pill. Bill Bodner is the special agent in charge of the DEA's LA office, and we spoke to him at the top of the show, but I wanted to ask him how easy it is to get fentanyl, especially on social media.
3: That's a major part of the issue today. you know the the crux of it is we have a drug that's 50 times more powerful as heroin it's being it's been uh disguised as something else and anyone who has a smartphone now can get it that's a that's a different thing uh, years ago it used to be hey if you want to do first of all people didn't experiment with heroin you know it was an intravenous drug you had a syringe a tourniquet um, there was a process you had to go through to 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 inject it that scared a lot of people away from that drug like I said, a drug that's 50 times more powerful today that you don't have to go to a part of town where there's high crime or you don't have to go l- looking for it. You can just sit in your bedroom or your living room, get on your smartphone, go on Snapchat, go on Instagram, go on uh, one of the social media apps, find a dealer. You can have a delivery made to your house and you can pay with one of the payment apps. And so so here's here's where that kind of came from. COVID, when 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 places shut down, you know, all of us in the working world, a lot, we it changed how we did business, right? There was a lot more remote work, a lot more dig quote digital work. The same thing happened in the drug trade. The places where people used to go to get drugs, maybe it was a nightclub, a bar, um, some kind of social gathering, whatever. Those were those were kind of non-existent. You, you couldn't you couldn't go there, and dealers, sellers couldn't sell there. So what did they do? They started getting on social media and making an effort to connect with people there and do delivery. And that really exploded during COVID, that social media delivery model of retail drug trafficking. And now even with everything open back back up, people have found that it's so easy that they've continued to do that. Think of it just like when restaurants closed, people went a lot to DoorDash during Covid, And maybe now they stuck with it because they realized "Hmm, this is actually pretty easy. I can order food. I don't have to go pick it up. It's the same thing now with retail drug sales. And uh, the scary part is, you know, a lot of the parents I talk to who have lost children, they say, I thought my home was safe. And that's such a riveting statement to hear. And, you know, they didn't know that the threat was in the smartphone. They didn't know that these powerful drugs could be delivered down the block and and there's cases I've seen where a kid would just tell his parents, hey, I'm, I'm running out for a minute. Literally run down the street, meet a dealer that, that the deal was arranged over Snapchat, pay on an app, come back home, come in the house, go up to his room and not wake up the next morning. I mean, those are real cases that happen. And it's because of the social media apps and the accessibility now of these super powerful drugs.
4: What can parents do?
3: Parents have to monitor their kids' social media um, they and and really I guess the first thing I would tell parents is they have to learn the subject matter you know the, I used to just tell parents hey talk to your kids and then I realized I don't know that parents even know themselves what's going on in the in the retail drug world right now with fentanyl how dangerous it is where it is um, the deception that's going on so well, I'm telling parents Go on social media, Uh, there's documentaries about fentanyl, one is called Dead on Arrival, watch that yourself, so you're educated, watch it with your teenager together, and then that'll be the conversation starter. That'll be the thing that gets you talking with your kids about drugs, what they see in schools, where they see these drugs being available, because I guarantee right now, the kids know a little bit more than even the parents do about what's going on in this, in this retail drug world. They know that the drugs are sold on social media apps. They might not know that it's fentanyl, uh, which is very important information. And that's where we need the parents to get educated, talk with their children and say, no, these pills that, that kids are buying are not real. They're fake and they contain fentanyl.
4: And I suspect that this incident recently at Bernstein High School that had to have been a wake-up call for a lot of people. It it
3: had to it had to have been, and the the only thing, and I know there's <clears throat> there's a lot of talk about that specific case, and by talking about that specific case, I don't want parents to think, "Whew! Thank God my kids don't go to Bernstein," or "Man, I'm glad I don't live in that neighborhood," or hey, that's the city of LA, that's not where I live in X suburb of LA, you know, 30 miles out of town. The reality is it's everywhere. Everywhere is an open air drug market right now. That's the mindset that parents need to have. And the conduit to that open air drug market is the smartphone. So monitor what your kids are doing on the phone, monitor what they're doing on social media apps. When they're friending new people, ask them why. It used to be like if you wanted to know what your kid was doing, you would look out the window or look down the street you can't do that now and the dangers are exponentially greater now and the the ability to monitor is probably exponentially lesser so it really takes engagement of parents with their children and what their children are doing on social media there's a whole emoji language that that children have that I'm sure parents know very little about Um, we offer uh, an emoji decoder DEA.gov backslash one pill it's a downloadable kind of guide there that shows what these different emojis mean in the retail drug trade and just look out for that stuff because the unfortunate reality is kids will probably continue to experiment with drugs that's that's always been something that happens the problem now is the dangers it used to be we tell kids don't take drugs it could lead to addiction Um, you know 10 years of addiction or whatever it could create these huge problems now it's don't take drugs you could die today and and i think that's the important Uh, important message to get out that it's really not about long-term consequences now it's about the immediate consequences of that decision it could end your life today
4: before I let you go I I see these pictures I get your your press releases and I see these photos where you've got hundreds and thousands of pills and you've seized millions of pills not just here in this market but but nationwide I can't help but think that um, you know while you're sitting there touting all these seizures that there isn't more hundreds and thousands of pills and millions of pills coming across the border um are you making a dent agent i mean i mean are you really having an impact on this
3: yes and here's how you know here's how, how i say that with such confidence steve supply side reduction does work to reduce harm in the community and what i point people to is uh prescription opiate drugs The Centers for Disease Control, they track how many opiate prescriptions are written in the United States. And if you go back and look at, say, 2011 or 2012, uh, the peak number was about 255 million opiate prescriptions. Believe it or not, that's a huge number. Look at how many overdoses there were those years from prescription, opiates and then contrast that with today when the number uh, the number of opiate prescriptions is probably down to around 140 million that's a significant reduction we saw the overdose deaths caused by those prescription opiates go down so, so I do feel that that by reducing the supply of drugs you can reduce the harm uh, it's easier to quantify that in the prescription drug market because we know what the total market is Quite honestly, we don't know what the total market is in the illicit drug market. We don't know how many fentanyl pills uh, are, com- are that these cartels are creating every day, but we know that if we can reduce the number, you know, the, we have uh, the the media campaign, One Pill Can Kill, to get the word out that it, it only takes one pill, as we saw at Bernstein High School, it only takes one pill to kill someone. The fact that we're taking this, you know, 10 million pills off the street in a couple months, it shows that there is a demonstrable benefit to the public with us doing that.
4: Agent Bodner, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Good luck.
3: Thanks, Steve. For an extended interview with Agent Bodner,
4: download the Deadly Pill podcast on the iHeartRadio app. Coming up. We talk with an addiction specialist about the spike in substance abuse cases and the additional burden it has caused on the medical community.
1: If you or someone you know suffers from a mental and or substance use disorder, call the National Toll-Free Helpline at 1-800-662-HELP. That's 1-800-662-4357.
4: This is Deadly Pill on KFI AM 640. Time now for a news update.
1: KFI AM 640, live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app.
4: I'm Steve Gregory with KFI News. Welcome back to Deadly Pill. Dr. Rebecca Trotsky is the director of addiction and community medicine in the LA County USC medical system. I asked her just how bad addictions become in recent years.
5: Thank you for that question. Um, Addiction is something I think we're all intimately familiar with, whether it's something that's affected our friends or family or somebody close to us. Professionally, I have the honor of working at LAC USC, which is one of our safety net hospitals in the county where we see patients for all kinds of reasons, heart disease, cancers, liver diseases. And we also see a lot of people in social crisis, so coming into our ER because there's really no place for them to go, and they're in despair. And when we talk to our patients in our community, we see that underlying a lot of issues is substance use disorders. And so we definitely feel the impact of untreated substance use disorders addiction people who've been struggling for years wanting wanting help and finally finding a place to go for help so it's really an honor to privilege to uh, serve our community
4: are you seeing what I mean what ages what are you seeing and is there a, um, uh, I I don't know is there a, a particular age or demographic that you're seeing that's coming in with addiction issues
5: yeah, so I am a family medicine doctor, which means, you know, birth to grave is who I care for. And my subspecialty is in addiction medicine. So I've really focused on how addiction plays within the life course of a person and their family. Um, we do a lot with adults, of course, but we also do see more and more younger people coming in with overdoses. And that's been in the news recently, where people are experimenting with drugs at a younger age and those drugs tend to be more lethal or more deadly or more potent because of what's being mixed into them or is contaminated into them. So we're seeing a lot of a lot of the legacy of the opioid crisis or overprescribing of opioids but we're also seeing the new um street economy of fentanyl.
4: Now when you you talk about fentanyl I mean You know, I've been talking to others when they say that it wasn't even on their radar five or six years ago. And and I mean, fentanyl, there is a legitimate use in in medicine and in particular for surgeries and other things like that. But in terms of it being so readily available and becoming such an issue with with people like you who, like you say, are are in the safety net services where you're seeing sort of the end result of the overdose or the end result of the uh, illicit use of the drug. Um, I mean, have you ever seen it this bad before, especially with fentanyl?
5: Um, fentanyl has been in our minds for the past couple of years, we've been really aware of how opioids in general have impacted our community, but um, with fentanyl it becomes almost a, a deadly lottery where people are not knowing that they're using a substance and it ends up having fentanyl and then they have a bad reaction to it. So it's a really different experience. We've had people come and say that they thought they were using um, methamphetamines, that they were using cocaine, thought they were even using weed. And it turns out to be um, intermixed with fentanyl. We have had people who've been using heroin for a number of decades even, and then have a new distributor and all of a sudden they're with an overdose because it's just such a level of potency different than what we had seen before. Um, The good news is we are equipped well to help people who use fentanyl and use any sort of opioid, whether that's Norco or pills like morphine or injecting like heroin or fentanyl or smoking. Um, We have great treatments here at the county, um, and we're more and more ready to be able to deploy those treatments wherever you come in, whether it's for a broken leg for a car crash, for a heart attack, if it turns out you also have other issues, we're able to co-treat those issues with you.
4: And would you please clarify and explain what a safety net service is And when you say you're in the safety net por- portion of this?
5: Yeah, well, I have a really interesting experience of being right across the street from USC Keck Hospitals, which are really well-funded and serve a very different clientele than the safety net system, which is the community-supported hospital and medical system of Los Angeles County. So we're really fortunate in LA County and in California that our civil society has stepped up and said, hey, healthcare is important to us. And so even if you don't have insurance, even if you didn't fill out your paperwork, even if you don't have immigration status, we're here to help you. And and our doors are open to you. And we're, we're very excited to be able to make sure that everybody ha- receives a basic level of care that helps them thrive in our community. So that's what we mean by safety net. Um, people have many options to go for healthcare and we encourage people to go where wherever they want to go. But we're here for people who don't have um, any other option or or choose to come to us.
4: You know, you, you saying that makes me think of something real quick. Is this, you know, a lot of times you talk about some of these drugs and they're very expensive and, and you know, only very wealthy people could afford this really, you know, the, all the high end drugs and whatnot or whatever you get on the streets. And But the one thing I'm noticing about fentanyl now and officials that I speak with both in medical and law enforcement is that this seems to be a drug that's going across all demographics, all socioeconomic backgrounds. Are you seeing that as well?
5: For sure. Um, It's interesting to note that people use substances across all demographics, all races, all genders, pretty much at the same rate, but the harms from use of drugs is really different based on a bunch of different factors. So we know certain populations get more criminalized for drug use than other populations. And it's important that when we talk about fentanyl, yeah, there is a sprinkling of fentanyl across everywhere and it's harming everybody, but it's really impacting um young poor people of color and it's hard for us to imagine that that's the case because i think the media portrays um some drug use or like high you know profile cases don't tend to be that population but that's often the population that sees a lot of health harms from drug use and a lot of societal harms from that whether that's difficulty getting jobs difficulty getting housing difficulty with uh, arrests and criminalization histories so um you know it's nice kind of being in the safety net system is we're really anchored in that concept of equity really trying to make sure that what we do as providers serves everybody and pays a special attention to people who aren't used to getting the services that they need um and Like I alluded to, we have great treatments for opioid use disorder, which includes fentanyl use. So those are just technologies in medicine that we're now able to provide people, whether that's methadone or whether that's buprenorphine and suboxone. We're really able to help people get access to medications that when they take, they really transform their lives. So they go from somebody who often hasn't seen their family for you know, a decade has been living on the streets to then, hey, I got my life together because I'm no longer craving opioids. I'm no longer using fentanyl. I'm no longer living in a tent. I reconnected with my grandma. I had a patient come and tell me, you know, my grandma just lent me 10 bucks. And I wanted to tell you that because she would have never lent me any money for decades. She was so worried about what I would do with that money. And things like that are the stories in medicine that really carry, carry hope for us because it is Overall, sometimes a depressing uh, city we live in. It's a depressing time sometimes we live in. We've all been struggling these past couple of years, but the treatment for addiction medicine is just this ray of hope that we are able to provide for people at a really hard time in their life.
4: You can hear an extended interview with Dr. Trotsky by downloading the Deadly Pill podcast on the iHeartRadio app. Coming up, we speak with a licensed advanced alcohol and drug counselor who walks us through the steps of rehab. But first, this is Deadly Pill on KFI AM640. Time now for a news update.
1: With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. today.